Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings of old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom is our interpretive guide. This episode is based on three articles that tell of two eruptions of violence between Union and Confederate sympathizers during the Civil War. Both occurrences involved the prominent Baker family whose home is now the Baker Peters Jazz Club. The first event is the shooting death of Dr. Harvey Baker in his home, and the second is the lynching of his son in downtown Knoxville. These articles were transcribed from sources that are very difficult to read due to their age, so some paraphrasing, guessing, and omissions in the text have been necessary. The first article was published by J. Austin Sperry in the Daily Register, Knoxville, Tennessee, on June 25, 1863. I am induced by various reports and circulation in reference to this case to give you a statement of the facts for publication. Dr. Baker was my nearest neighbor and as good and true a friend as I ever had. I was in the city when the federal force came into our neighborhood and of course I have no personal knowledge of the affair, but I have the facts from the only reliable witnesses of them. On my way home from this place on last Friday afternoon, I met a Confederate scouting party under Captain Wiggs about four and a half miles from Knoxville, and was informed by him that the Federals were approaching and that his party had fled on their advance, guarding the road in front of Dr. Baker's home. Wiggs and his men at the time occupied a position on the road leading to Colonel Heiskell's mill, about 800 yards from the main road. Their guns went off from Dr. Baker's home and over his garden and orchard. After Wiggs had fired, the Federals advanced rapidly and turned into his backyard. Mr. Baker was standing on the back porch, distant about 40 feet. His horse was hitched near the gate, and he was just going out to start to Knoxville, anticipating the approach of the Federals. He had a Maynard rifle in his hand and a Colt pistol in his belt. The Federal soldier who found him thus stopped his horse and presented his gun. Dr. Baker called to him, Don't fire, I am a citizen. The Federal cocked his gun and put it to his shoulder, when Dr. Baker presented his gun and fired first but without bringing it to his shoulder. The Federal fired immediately after Dr. Baker shot, and although there was not more than 18 feet distance between them, it seems neither shot took effect. The Federal pulled back to the main road, and Dr. Baker went into his house and said to his wife, It is too late. I can't get away. He told Mrs. Baker to take the children and go upstairs. She insisted on his going also, to which he consented, The whole family, then at home, consisting of Dr. Baker, wife, two small children, Mrs. Baker's little sister, about ten years of age, with three or four little Negroes, were in a room upstairs. The enemy surrounded the house and called upon the men to come down and surrender. Dr. Baker went to the window to reply when several shots were fired at him, one which it is supposed passed through the brim of his hat as it was perforated by ball sometime during the night and then spoke to them through the window and proposed to surrender if they would cease to fire. They endangered him again, and then he returned the fire with his pistol. But the third time he called from the door, making the same terms, and they fired again. Mrs. Baker went to the window and assured them that her husband was the only man in the house and that he was a private citizen and would surrender if they would not fire on them. They drove her from the window with threats. Dr. Baker went to the window again, and was again fired on and returned the fire. Mrs. Baker then went out of the room against the doctor's remonstrance, 
to speak to the Federals in the room below. They occupied the stairs, the passageway below, the parlor, which was under the room occupied by the family, and from the parlor they were shooting vertically through the ceiling and floor above. Mrs. Baker, standing at the head of their stairway, begged them to resist and promised that her husband would then come down. They cursed her and threatened to shoot her if she did not go back. Three men pointed their guns at her, but she still stood and begged for her family's safety. A soldier cocked his piece. Mrs. Baker heard the click, brought it to his shoulder, and swore he would shoot her if she did not go in. She retired, and when the door was shut, two balls were fired through it. She made her report, and the doctor, telling her to stand by the wall through which the door opened, stepped forward and threw the door wide open and discharged the two remaining balls in his pistol. How many shots were fired in at him, it is impossible to tell. Dr. Baker snapped his pistol twice after it was exhausted. One Federal then threw his gun at Baker, and he gathered it and hurled it back. A second one threw in his gun with a bayonet on it. Baker seized it and rushed nearly to the door and pitched it at them. At this juncture, his wife saw him reel, and he exclaimed, Agnes, I am killed. Mrs. Baker sprang forward and caught him, when slapping his right hand on his left shoulder, he said, I am hit again. Then he fell on his face. The Federals rushed in and rudely pushed Mrs. Baker from the side of her husband. One of them demanded of her the pistol of her husband. She answered them she did not have it, and had not seen it since her husband used it. With a fixed bayonet pointed at her, and within a few inches of her bosom, the soldier swore he would have it. Another called out, Here's a pistol, I've got it. The first, turning, snatched it from the hands of the second, saying, This is mine. Dr. Baker called and asked to be turned over. He was lying on his face. Mrs. Baker went and tried to turn him, but had to ask aid. A soldier assisted her. He asked for water, and Mrs. Baker asked a soldier if he had water in his canteen, to which he replied in the affirmative, handing it to her. She gave her husband water from it. Other soldiers had crowded into the room around the dying man, and one jabbed him in the face with the muzzle of his gun. Another struck him on the right cheekbone with a bayonet, while two or three others with bayonets on their guns were in the very act of striking him, when Mrs. Baker threw up her hand and exclaimed, For God's sake, don't abuse a dying man. You have killed him. Be satisfied. They attempted to drive her away by threats, but just then an officer, an Ohio man, entered and ordered them to stand back. Dr. Baker said, You are a cowardly set of rascals thus to attack a private citizen and then to abuse his dead body. At Mrs. Baker's request, the officer cleared the room of all but two or three, when the doctor asked him to protect his family, which he promised to do. Dr. Baker said to him, Sir, you have command of a cowardly set of creatures. The chaplain of the regiment went in to see Dr. Baker and conversed with and prayed for him. Three surgeons also went in to see him and cleansed his wounds and did what they could for him. Some of the servants attempted to go for Dr. William Baker, who lives half a mile below Dr. Harvey Baker's residence, but according to their report, they were not allowed to pass down the road. A boy who started was taken from the mule and ordered back, but he went back of the field on the ridge and reached Dr. William Baker's. Mrs. Baker expressed some surprise at Dr. William Baker not coming down when Mr. Williams took his horse and started down, meeting Dr. William Baker about halfway. The officers spoken of above, Mr. Williams, and the surgeons, manifested regret at the occurrence and sympathy with a distressed wife. 
Some of the soldiers rifled the drawers in the bureau of the doctor's eldest daughter upstairs, and Mrs. Baker downstairs, taking the breast pin which contained the likeness of her husband. These are the material facts of the case, and thus did Harvey Baker come to his death on Friday the 19th of June, 1863. I suppose the Federals regarded the attack as coming partly from Dr. Baker's house, when in truth the fire was from the scouting party on the high south and back of the house. Dr. Baker was born in Garara County, Kentucky in 1811. He had resided in this county for thirty years or more. He was a true man, impulsive, bold, but not reckless. He was kind and generous, indulgent to his family. He was doted upon by children and servants, also as a friend. No man stood closer to an enemy. No man was more open. He died humbly, relying upon the mercy of God through the wisdom of Jesus Christ. May God bless and sustain his family under this terrible bereavement. This statement is made from the only reliable sources of information to stop the unwarranted rumors circulating in regard to it, and as an act of justice to the memory of one who was true in all the relations of life and who is now beyond the reach of human hate. James Parle, June 22, 1863. This is an account written from a Confederate point of view, which I think is it's important to notice, you know, that um, because there were conflicting stories, and this is published in the Daily Register, which was a Confederate paper by J. Austin Sperry. And part of what is interesting to me is that there were so many conflicting stories about the murder of Dr. Harvey Baker. There are just there are totally different versions out there in print in various places that are sort of hearsay attributed. Um, Dr. Harvey Baker uh, was a, a physician and he was a he was a prominent Confederate as was his brother Dr. William J. Baker and they were neighbors out on Kingston Pike. They had plantations adjoining and they both were uh, physicians practicing medicine in Knoxville, very highly thought of individuals. Uh, William J. Baker had practiced medicine in Knoxville until his health started to go to get bad, and he had then moved out to live in the country. And he was a very highly thought of physician. He was, he performed one of the first um, a re successful removals. It was actually, I think, it was the third successful removal of an ovarian cancer from a woman. And they used, I think, they used anesthetic, if I remember correctly. And she lived. That was the important part. The third one who lived. <laughs> <laughs> So, and he was very highly thought of as a physician, and his brother was, and they were respected people in the community who had moved here from Kentucky in the 1820s. And both of the two doctors died in the, in the time of the Civil War. Harvey Baker was shot and murdered. His brother actually had, had declining health from a, a stroke and died of a heart failure right after, five months after the Civil War. So the whole family just went into an economic uh, decline and disaster during the war years. Mm -hmm. um, the conflicting accounts on the murder of Dr. James Harvey Baker, some of the accounts say that he uh, and other Confederates ambushed some Union troops that were moving around out on the pike. The more popular and usual <laughs> version is that he was riding out on Kingston Pike and he accidentally encountered some Union soldiers and one of them raised a gun to fire at him 
and he raised his gun and fired back, and neither one hit the target. They were just 18 feet apart. Uh -huh. But then he raced back to his house, and then the disaster of the uh, Union troops attacking the house and eventually killing him happened. And this was a small group of Union soldiers, uh, or and some versions say Union soldiers and some local Unionists. So there are all these different conflicting versions of what happened in his murder. And uh, then when you get to at the year, the immediate aftermath of the war, the the family had been economically ruined. Uh, the widow was trying to settle his estate, and actually his brother William J. Baker was trying to was the executor trying to settle his brother's estate. My brother owned. A, you know, a valuable house, which is the Baker Peters house, and about 800 acres of land and various other things. And that was a terrible time to try to settle an estate during, you know, a war you know, going on around you. But they were they had to do that. And as his, as Dr. William J. Baker's health failed, he had to turn over the executorship to somebody else, and then he died. Um, he actually died September 20th, 1865, which is about three weeks after Abner shot William Hall and was, was lynched the next day. Mm -hmm. So there's just this whole series of catastrophes that sort of you know, strike this particular family. And there is a, you know, there's a long-standing story, rumor, that there is a ghost at the Baker Peters house. And of course it would be the ghost of, of Dr. Baker, who, who did die in the house. There's no question about that. Yes, we have the tale of the haunting of the Baker Peters house in mm -hmm. a book called Mysterious Knoxville by oh. Charles Edwin Price. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, you know, it was a horrible episode of the war. And of course the time when Dr. Harvey Baker was killed was a time when the Union Army had not yet reoccupied East Tennessee. It was June 13, 1863 when he had his encounter with these troops that were moving around and in Knox County and things were very unsettled and he um, probably fled back to his house hoping he could protect his family. He probably would have been better advised just to flee and try to draw the, any of these people away from the family. He might have gotten away but he went back to his house which was close by and that was his undoing mm -hmm. because they were determined to they were determined to take him and they wouldn't talk about terms for surrender for him to you know be to disarm and, and be arrested uh, they, they wanted a shot at him and they got it Steve transcribed this next article from Governor Brownlow's newspaper the Knoxville Whig and Rebel Ventilator of September 6 1865 account of the hanging of Abner Baker in Knoxville is given by Parson W.G. Brownlow shooting of young Hall and hanging of young Baker. We have taken some trouble to learn the leading facts of the cases indicated above, which upon the whole are the most melancholy occurrences of the times. Adjutant Will Hall of the 2nd Tennessee Federal Cavalry, acting as a clerk of the court, was in the courthouse on Monday, the place of his business, and meeting Abner Baker coming out of the clerk's office, an altercation occurred, which resulted in Baker shooting Hall through the head from the effects of which he died in a few hours. Baker had served three years in the rebel army, and at the breaking out of the war, when a difficulty occurred between Hall and another rebel, Baker stepped up and drew a pistol on him. There seems, therefore, to have been an old grudge. The evidence is that Hall had no weapon about him but a small rattan cane. The testimony is 
that as they met, Hall perceived Baker drawing his revolver and broke his cane over him. In a scuffle, they got down upon the floor, and while Hall was endeavoring to get away, Baker shot him in the back of the head. Baker was at once arrested by Sheriff Bearden and lodged in jail. There was considerable excitement on the street, and both citizens and soldiers were uttering threats against Baker. We were on the streets, as it was in the forenoon of Monday, and together with Judge Jones, Chancellor Rogers, and Judge Hall, the uncle of the murdered adjutant, and many other discreet citizens, we all advised against any mob violence, as wrong in every respect. We told those complaining that the murderer was in jail, and would be dealt with according to law. The father of the murdered man, with commendable manliness and devotion to law and order, made a short talk said he wanted no violence, but wanted the law to take its course. Everything quieted down, and at sunset the street was cleared of soldiers and citizens. At eight o'clock the fire bell rang, which now turns out to have been the signal for taking Baker out of jail and hanging him to a tree in the jail yard, which is said to have been executed quietly and without interruption. We reside in East Knoxville and had gone to bed as our custom has been to retire at dark for years. We heard the ringing of the bell, and supposed there was a fire. It turned out, however, that Baker was hung, but by whom no one seems to know. Reports say that there were one thousand persons led on by an advanced guard of about forty men. The sheriff and the jailer are not in the least to blame. They could not stand up with a guard of five men against such a force. We have advised the sheriff to double his guard, and we have no doubt he will do so. There are those in town who are perfectly shocked at these outrages and are asking why the governor does not interfere. The governor is here and regrets that men who have served in the rebel army for more than three years are parading the streets with revolvers, swearing they have been overpowered but not convinced. The governor regrets that union men are shot down by them and that their friends in turn are hanging them in violation of law. The governor is as powerless as any other citizen in all such cases. The governor is not so much horrified as many others. He was shocked four years ago when an innocent union man He was shocked four years ago when innocent union men were taken from his side out of the same jail two at a time and hung by the other party, and the she devils threw up their white handkerchiefs in approbation. The governor may have been a little used to scenes of this kind and not feel as deeply as he ought on this solemn occasion. Young Baker is reported to have met death with great coolness. He said they could take his life, but he had the consolation to know that he had killed three white men and two Negroes. In conclusion, if the public will have the governor act for the interests of all men, he can only counsel and charge nothing for advice. He advised all who seek to make friends among rebel he advised all who seek to make friends among rebels by espousing their cause and by sympathizing with them to be a little more sparing in their denunciations and a little less personal when they speak of union mobs. There are two sides to all these questions, and there are two parties, and one party in this county numbers all told one hundred thirty six. And here is another telling of the Abner Baker lynching from New York World. The Knoxville Tragedy 
Young Baker was the son of Dr. Harry Baker, a prominent physician who was unfortunately killed during the Sanders Raid in East Tennessee in June 1863. He was 16 or 18 years old, but very small of his age. He had been in the rebel army, but had always been considered a very quiet, gentlemanly young man. Hall, who was quite a large man, was in the Federal Army a short time, then clerk in the Custom House at Nashville, where he married, afterwards removed to Knoxville, and was appointed clerk of the circuit court. On the day of the homicide, Hall was standing in the Mansion House barroom, where he saw a young Baker go into County Court Clerk's office just opposite. Hall immediately started across the street, remarking to bystanders that they now would see him give a rebel the damnedest thrashing ever a white man got. He then attacked Baker in the office, breaking his cane the first blow. Baker backed out of the office, down the steps, Hall following him up, Baker using arms to ward off the blows. When Baker reached the pavement, he drew a pistol and fired, the ball taking effect in the head near the ear, while Hall was in the act of striking. Hall died instantly. Baker was immediately arrested by the sheriff and taken to jail, which is now in the hands of a civil officer and some half-dozen colored soldiers. The night following, a large crowd of men, headed by a former United States officer, proceeded to the jail, which was surrendered without the show of resistance. Baker was taken out quietly and given in charge of four or five men who took him a few feet from the jail yard to a shade tree, and after forcing him to mount an old chair, they tied a rope to a limb where he was hanging the next morning at breakfast time. The jail guards say that he died bravely, telling the mob after the rope was adjusted that they were a pack of cowards and to come and face him and see how a brave man could die. Correspondence, New York World. There was a popular belief that somehow Abner Baker held Will Hall accountable for his father's murder. But also, uh, there had been a big altercation between the two men before the Civil War, at the, at the time the war broke out, uh, when Hall was about to attack a secessionist and, and ba Abner Baker intervened. So there was already a bad feeling between these two men. The interesting thing to me about the the article that that Governor Brownlow wrote in the third person as the editor of the newspaper was that he tries to uh, exonerate himself in the article. He sort of says, "I really didn't know what was going on. That it was a you know, it was a very well orchestrated um, movement of." of a large number of citizens, and somehow a lot of the leaders in the community didn't know what was going on, which I right. find very, very hard to believe. <laughs> right. Right. There was an army of occupation here, and it was a lot of it African-American, and um, they were overwhelmed. There were a thousand men out there. They rang a bell, a fire bell, and the next thing, this mob descended on the jail. Now, when you think about the population of Knoxville at 1865, you know, that's a huge number of adult white males in the community turning out. If that mob was estimated at a thousand, it's probably twenty percent of the mm -hmm. you know, the population of able bodied white men in a certain age range. Mm -hmm. um, very large number. And uh and Baker and, and both sides say that, that Baker, you know, challenged the mob to look him in the face and they were cowards and to watch a rebel die. I mean, that's in both versions, so I think that's true. 
but he was buried in the First Presbyterian Church Cemetery, graveyard, where uh, his uncle, William, Dr. William J. Baker, had been um, an active member of the congregation and I think an elder, you know, very active in that church. And that church was a also a very um, had a lot of very outspoken secessionists in the congregation. But he was buried there in a family plot, and the, the, a monument was put up sometime not too long after he was to, uh, after he died at Obelisk that says, "Sacred to the memory of Abner Baker, born August fifteenth, eighteen forty three, died September fourth, eighteen sixty five." a martyr for manliness and personal rights. His death was an honor to himself, but an everlasting disgrace to his enemies. <laughs> Cowards die many times, the brave but once. And then on the other side of that obelisk, it says, the friends of Abner Baker erect this monument in commemoration of his virtues and in testimony of his goodness and manly worth. Fresh be his memory. So there were a lot of secessionists who viewed him as a sort of a hero because um, of you know confronting somebody that he had you know had some kind of bad experience with, uh, and and the way he died. I mean, he obviously died with a you know a lot of a bravery and courage. Are so there the, other stories of Confederate sympathizers in the very pro-Unionist East Tennessee area being harassed, killed? There are lots of them, and um, and they're kind of scattered all over the region. There was such a division between Unionists and Confederates more in East Tennessee than probably any other region of the South. There was a, there was a good bit of violence and of course it was all over the South not just here but it, here in East Tennessee it was more of a of a violence neighbor against neighbor and there was a lot of tit-for-tat during the whole four years of the war. Of thing. And it, a lot of it probably came out of grudges, one person against another person. There were instances of people just, you know, um, all over East Tennessee who would be shot dead with no, you know, no obvious motive. I mean, sometimes it was anonymous, totally anonymous murder. Sometimes it was uh, people who fled out of fear. It's an interesting time in East Tennessee and Knoxville. And there were other examples of people who, because of the kind of veil threats, from their neighbors just picked up and moved away. And a large number of Confederates moved away, sometimes just for a few months, a few years, sometimes forever. A good example of that would be the Inman family of Atlanta, who uh, left Jefferson County after the Civil War because a lot of the neighbors were pretty hostile, and then did extremely well economically in Atlanta, became very wealthy and important people in Atlanta. So. Uh, our loss was Atlanta's gain on that one, I guess. It was a sort of reconstruction. Tennessee was the first state readmitted into the into the Union because of... And the, they were the last to secede, weren't they? And they were the last to secede. They, they, and because of the Unionists in East Tennessee, they got a little bit easier time of it. But then the struggle was between the Confederates, the former Confederates, who were um, a large part of the population trying to regain some power versus Brownlow and the Republican element who were trying to hold on to power. And that was a, that sort of exacerbated the, the conflict. And, and you know, it's funny that um, Parson Brownlow would always leaven his remarks about um, 
these episodes of violence against people who were former Confederates with, well, but during the beginning of the Civil War, when the Confederate Army occupied East Tennessee, the uh, a lot of the the bridge burners were hanged and their bodies were hung up by the railroad and people going by on the railroad would beat the bodies with canes. I mean, Confederates would abuse the corpses. So, you know, he would always throw that back at people mm-hmm. uh, when the shoe was on the other foot. And Parson Brownlow's daughter, Susan, who uh, is the one who's pre- who prevented the Confederates from pulling the U.S. flag off the front porch of the Parson's house mm-hmm. during the war, um, stayed and protected the family property during the war. So, you know, she she survived pretty much unmolested, although he had to he had to pretty much literally flip flee for his life. And of course this Confederate paper that wrote the register was um being published here oh, here in Knoxville and as the Union Army occupied Knoxville then the the paper fled south with the Confederate troops. So it kept moving and going south until it actually was being published in North Georgia. And then the editor, J. Austin Sperry, tried to escape into Virginia and got captured and ended up as a prisoner of war. I had heard that Parson Brownlow was a fiery oh, he writer, was, he but was, was Sperry... Yeah, he, he was a, a pretty much of a, a rabid uh, uh, secessionist. Uh, but uh, Brownlow was, was always uh, provocative. I mean, all of his life he was a, he was an, he was a fascinating individual and um, a kind of a lightning rod for trouble his whole mortal existence. He was born in 1811 in with County, Virginia, and he died in, I believe, in 1877 here in Knox in Knoxville. But he spent most of his life in East Tennessee. He came first to Elizabethton um, after he had been a Methodist preacher for about 10 years. And then a couple of years later, because he got into so many controversies up there, he moved to Knoxville and started the Knoxville Whig, which was... Um, the ancestor of the Knoxville Journal, um, and it was one of the oldest partisan papers in the region, and it was highly partisan. It was a, he was a Whig first, and then of course a Republican, and the paper continued to have a strong Republican kind of bias or whatever to it. It was a, it had a, a party point of view to it, mm-hmm. much of its history. Well, but at that time there was more than one. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> He got into politics. At the end of the war, he came back as a the Civil War as a a local hero because he had um, spoken for the Unionists all over the North and had helped to raise money for the relief of the Union Unionist families here in East Tennessee. He was a celebrity speaker in Philadelphia and big cities for Unionist people here in East Tennessee. Came back after the war. As soon as he could get back here, he set his newspaper back up. Uh, got a press. They had, of course destroyed his press and. His paper was not published until November 1863, but as soon as he started publishing, he added the extra phrase, and rebel ventilator. So it was the Knoxville Whig and rebel ventilator, and that is ventilator as in shooting holes and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's not airing views to me. It's more like exposing crimes and avenging crimes or whatever. But Mm -hmm. he he was... uh, he, he, he switched gears, went into politics. He served two terms as governor of Tennessee during the 1860s and then served one term as United States senator from East Tennessee. Um, and probably took some pleasure in the fact, I believe he outlived one of his old 
enemies, Andrew Johnson, by just a little while. So, you know, he got to see one of them, I think, buried before he passed away in 1877. Well, what was their past? Oh, well, Johnson had been a Democrat uh -huh. before the war. And, of course, you know, he had no use for people who, were <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> who weren't true believers in the right religion and the right party and the right whatever. So. Was Brownlow disappointed at how Reconstruction dwindled? Or? I think he probably was because I think he had foreseen that maybe if they could disenfranchise the Confederates long enough, a party could emerge that would like a Republican Party that would control the politics of the state. And it was a, that was really what was going on in the background of all this other turmoil was a struggle for power, which really ended in 1870 with the drafting of a new constitution, the, the one that we live under now. Uh, and, we, and a lot of the former Confederates played a part in that. And then in the years immediately after that, the, those people who had been pardoned and come back into society who had been Confederates and the old guard of the pre-war power structure, many of those people came back into power. And so in the 1870s, some years before the rest of the South began to switch back to the old white aristocratic rule, the, you know, we had already sort of gotten there a little before the rest of the rest of the South. And, and Brownlow was also charged as governor with trying to make sure that like, African Americans could vote and those kinds of things and that they weren't in. That, that was the whole era when the Klan appeared. He was very concerned. He wanted the black voter to vote Republican. So he was very concerned in using that tool to retain Republican power. And in the long run it didn't work mm -hmm. for lots of reasons. <laughs> I haven't ever seen the ghost of no. Dr. Baker. <laughs> but the bullet holes are still there. The bullet holes are still there. Dr. Baker, Dr. James Harvey Baker is buried in the old Ebenezer Cemetery near his house. And Dr. William J. Baker is buried in Old Gray Cemetery. It was in, here in, in downtown Knoxville. So. Well, where is Parson Brown lie buried? He's buried in Old Gray Cemetery. He is there? Yeah, yeah. yeah he, that's his, um, his last resting place. And since he has no official monument anywhere else. That's one of the reasons why Old Gray was placed on the National Register. He has a very prominent obelisk. There's an old tradition that the Unionists are buried on the, the right side of the main avenue through the cemetery and the Confederates are buried on the left side. Now the lots were sold in the 1850s. So my theory is that the people who were friends with each other bought lots nearer each other and they didn't know there was going to be a civil war. <laughs> but it does work out that a lot of the Union people are on one side, and a lot of the Confederate leaders are on the other side. It just sort of happened that it way. It just happened that way, yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcasts page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each podcast episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. The music was performed by Music Therapy, and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, Copyright 2007, Knox County Public Library, Some Rights Reserved.